turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, <coughs> chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. I'll be reading Luke 17, 1 through 4. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you must forgive him. Let's pray. Lord, we need much Holy Spirit supernatural, sanctifying help to walk in what You command in this text this morning. And that's my prayer. That we hear what's clearly said and that You work in us to the glory of your name and to the joy of our great salvation. Amen. <clears throat> a few years ago, a middle-aged woman started coming to our church. And I remember within the first few weeks at a home group, while she was crying, thinking about lots of pain that she's experienced in church and at the hands of other believers, she was essentially pleading that we would promise her that we would not hurt her. And I spoke up and promised her that if she hangs around long enough, she will experience being hurt. It is not if we get sinned against. It is when we are sinned against, what do we do with it? It's impossible in this fallen world to expose yourself to any close relationships with other human beings and not eventually experience hurt or you're hurting the other. Now often, these hurts are unintentional. They may be a misunderstanding by the one who's hurt. There's all kinds of psychological dynamics that we have to work out in our re relationships, but sometimes they are sin and they are intentional and meant to hurt. And in those cases, repentance is required. See, these relational problems not only occur in the church from believer to believer, but what happens a lot is that a brother in the Lord marries a sister in the Lord. And it starts off being at the altar and with great romance and affection in the eyes and promising to love and to hold and to grow old with until we die. But often over years and children and life and sin, tension, anger, distance can go deep. What went wrong in those situations? 
sin. But not only sin, how we deal with the sin, no matter which side of that sin you're on. The one who needs to forgive, or the one who needs to repent. In this passage this morning, Jesus tells us how to live in this real world as sinners who are being saved by grace. And to live with other sinners in the body of Christ who are being saved by grace. So, are you there? Luke chapter 17. Jesus makes a a turn now in Luke's narrative. He's addressing the disciples. And in the first ten verses, Jesus gives four crucial characteristics of disciples. Who are these people that are being saved by Him? What are they looking like? And this morning, we're only going to deal with the first two. So let's start with the first in verse 1. And He, Jesus said to His disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Okay, let's pause for a moment. Literally in the Greek, Jesus says, it is impossible for scandala. That's the Greek word. It is impossible for scandala not to come within the church. That's what he means. He's talking to disciples. Now, that word scandala means something like a trap or enticement. Actions by one who puts scandala in front of another that is the cause of them deserting Christ. Going into a false teaching Or just becoming an apostate. Let me give you a taste of how Paul uses this same word, scandala. In Romans 16, verse 17, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and, and here's the word scandala, and scandala, or scandalize. That is, Translated here, create obstacles. Watch out for those people in the church who do that contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Something about scandala has something to do with doctrine. Teaching that, that, that just gets people off track and to move away from the true gospel of Christ. In chapter 14 of Romans, Paul uses it this way. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide as believers not to put a stumbling block or scandala in the way of a brother. And in that context, it had to do with decisions of insensitivity on how one Christian acted and lived that was causing the conscience of another believer to get defiled. Okay, so this term now, the way Jesus is using this in context, because scandala in the ESV is translated temptations to sin, but it's just one word. What he means... I think at the core here is those who entice others to sear their conscience. Those who entice others to move away from the centrality and the clarity of who Jesus is and the gospel of Christ. And they end up deserting Him. Jesus here says that false teaching is inevitable in the church. But don't be that person, my disciple, is what he's warning. Don't be the one who puts scandala in in, in one of those little ones. That's his word for my precious ones coming into the church. Do not be the one that is the cause of them deserting. 
He's saying, watch your words. Watch your lifestyle so that you're not the cause of another believer being derailed. Jesus warns in this text that the individual who leads his little ones astray in this way is subject to God's wrath. We should feel the the fear. We should feel the godly fear, particularly that every pastor ought to feel. Think of some very popular TV preachers who in the name of Christ preach everything but Christ clearly and faithfully. We should feel that when we read verse 2. Jesus goes on. It would be better for this person if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Same word there. That's the verb of the word scandalize. If he should scandalize. And be the cause. This woe is a sign of condemnation to false teachers. The fate, Jesus says, is severe. He doesn't say your fate is like the mafia is going to put your feet in cement and throw you over a boat. He says you would hope that's all that would happen to you. He said it would be better that that happened to you than what will happen if you're one of these. The seriousness of leading and of teaching other disciples is clearly stated by Jesus. Pastor Kent Hughes, in reflection on this text, writes, I have occasionally prayed with my pastoral colleagues, Lord, If one of us here is headed for adultery, take him home now. And all my colleagues nod their verbal assent. The scriptural rationale for this corporate prayer comes from the opening lines of Luke chapter 17. Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus' opening words here are literally, quote, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. That is, stumbling blocks that will alienate one from allegiance to Christ and lead back into sin. And then Jesus closes this warning with the first sentence of verse 3. Because I think that first sentence of verse 3 goes to what He just said, not to what He's going to say. Pay attention to yourself. Then Jesus goes on and He gives us His second admonition to all who are believers, who are disciples, starting in verse 3. Believer, if your brother, He means other Christian here, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you must forgive him. Relationships with one another as believers are a big concern to Jesus. We have, as believers, the responsibility to rebuke one another 
about sin and the responsibility to forgive the other when there is repentance. There are so many professing Christians who live false Christian lives. Floaters. As, as if the idea of being a Christian could be lived out outside of community. Outside of the local church. So many remain unaccountable and unresponsible for the lives of others by refusing to be known and to make themselves vulnerable and accountable in local churches. They're not living the Christian life that Jesus here assumes. Jesus lays out basic commitments in this text for every believer. They are to share in each other's pursuit of holiness. And that's why He exhorts us when need be to rebuke each other over sin. In other words, to call to account and say, that was wrong. You can't keep going that way. Turn, plead for the other to come to repentance. You see, Jesus calls us to this, to this not so that we just be busy bodies in each other's life. Actually, that is a sin to be a busy body in each other's life. But He does this because what Jesus is all about is all about creating communities that desire righteousness and that will entail accountability to one another down here on this earth. And let me just put a little parenthesis here. This command to rebuke, which is given to every believer when need be, Okay, that rebuking of another, of a calling to an account, is not to get it off your chest. To give the other person a piece of your mind, even when they really have sinned. If, if you're not out of that state yet in your own sin, just shut your mouth at that moment. That's not what he's calling us to. This call of rebuke, the goal is love. It is to bring the other to repentance. See, these exhortations of accountability, they're all over the New Testament. Let me just give you a taste. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins against you, Shout it to the rooftops. He doesn't say that. If your brother, your sister, the Lord sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he still refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. His words for as an unbeliever. Paul exhorts in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keeping watch on yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Watch self-righteousness. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14-15, And we urge you, church, we urge you to admonish the idol. 
to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with all. See that no one repays another one with evil before the evil they gave you, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Two more. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14-15, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And in Titus, Paul writes, As for a person who sins, and stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. See, it's what Jesus says in our text. It's these texts why at this church, and like many churches, that believe in the biblical idea of church membership. Where people go through a process, and yes, that means I'm covenanting with you. Why we in our church covenant here, it's sovereign grace, have this line in it. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. We will be exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Now, in summarizing what Jesus says here in verse 3, the commentator Daryl Bach concludes this way, quote, Disciples here, are not to pursue their spirituality in isolation from one another. For Jesus, faith is not merely a private affair, but something the community pursues together. The community of believers is a family in the sense that the best interest of each member is a concern of each other member. And thus the call to rebuke is the exercise of a family responsibility. The assumption in all of this is that disciples have a certain quality in their relationships that allows this type of positive, loving, confronting behavior to occur without destroying their relationships. End quote. So, this, this call that Jesus gives here is not a call to churchgoers. This is a call of church life. And there's a difference. The way the Hebrew writer unfolds this church life goes like this in chapter 3 of Hebrews, verses 12 to 14. And think about it. Think about your life. And think about if this, the way you live your life as a Christian, could include you. Think about it. Take care, brothers, plurality, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay, there's the warning. And now he gives, okay, this is how you prevent that. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, because we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. The New Testament does not understand an isolated Christian life. It is a life lived in Christ's community. And every believer is desperate for others to hold each other to account. And in Luke 17, 
the sin that is rebuked, called to account the person, usually is because you're called to rebuke because that sin was personally done against you. I can see this right there, the second half of Jesus' statement. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Are you a Christian? Is Christ your Savior? Then listen to Him. You are to be quick to offer, give forgiveness when repentance in that other person is present. Cut the tie. That's over. Done. Forever. Okay, here's a question. Okay? But, what if after I do that, my brother, my sister, goes away, I've forgiven them, and they walked away not having become perfect yet. And they sin against me again. The same sin. And again, and again. Then, what do we believers do? Verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in the same day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I blew it, I sinned against you. This is what do you mean? I repent. Jesus says, then you must forgive Him. Welcome to the supernatural power of the real Christian life. Notice here what Jesus says. It is a personal offense. Let me just say, because this happens, I don't know if it's happened this week, but when, when, when people go into schoolyards and they shoot children, or this last Monday when two murderers place bombs. Sometimes Christians like to speak up. They don't know them. They have no one who's been hurt by them and say, we just forgive those people. It's not what Jesus is saying here. Notice it's a personal offense. Quote, sins against you. And notice that the extension of forgiveness is contingent upon their asking for. They're admitting their sin. Would you, would you hand me your forgiveness? I sinned against you. Isn't, isn't forgiveness unconditional? According to the opinion of popular evangelical Christianity, the answer is yes. But according to the Bible, no. Ephesians 4.37 says it this way. We are to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. God does not pardon sins apart from repentance. Now, don't miss this. He has acted before repentance. He has provided and provided for the forgiveness of sins long before any of us have ever come to repentance. He has actually towards us, acted kindly in bringing us to repentance from which then absolution, forgiveness is given 
And so we should be like God. That would mean, oh yeah, I, I haven't had the opportunity to forgive. They haven't even acknowledged it. But are you being like God? Is your heart prepared? I would so love to release them in this personal relationship. Is your heart being rid of bitterness and prepared to even go home and say, God, I pray for that person that you would lead them to repentance. And then, the minute they do ask you to forgive them, you say, yes. Okay, so I just want to hear me here. I'm saying, I'm saying this. The extension of forgiveness to that other person who has sinned against you and that process of ridding your own heart from pain, bitterness, and the desire for revenge against that person are two different things. Forgiveness will always include the other. The bitterness is gone and all that. That's that process of forgiveness. It will always include But without the opportunity to forgive, you can certainly, and I'm going to try to show, we're called Release it. Release it. Jesus, in this text, simply says, Christian, you must forgive when that person repents. But on the playing field of real life, that gets really Messy and hard, painful. So, what I want to do then for the rest of our time is pull back and try to give a larger biblical worldview of what Jesus is calling believers here in this text to do is so gospel centered. So, here's the problem. We're human beings. That means we have been created in God's image. And there is a God. And because there is a God, it means there is such a thing as right and wrong. Objectively, sin is real. It exists. Evil exists. Justice is a wonderful thing. In this world, because it's a reflection of God Himself who is just. So let me just say it this way. This is how we start. Created in God's image means we are created with a conscience. It means a conscience until we may have totally seared it. But in general, we're all created with a conscience of right and wrong. <laughs> okay. Sometimes it gets blurry for people, but there's things that are clear about this is unjust and this is just. This is wrong. Philosophers have called this, that sense in there, you just have it, the judicial sentiment. It's there. Let me give you what I mean by that. The two murderers, this last Monday in Boston, and now one of them is still alive. If... Well, you know, the, he, he's the little brother. He's 19 years old. His bigger brother, was he 26, 27? You know, he had a lot of influence on him. This guy got a bad break. You know what? Maybe we can just turn him around. Let, let's, let's absolve him of all responsibility and consequences for destroying the lives of thousands of people. Which when you account all the friends and all the family members as whatever. See, if we did that and said, let it go, go ahead and finish your degrees and, you know, okay, we'll keep an eye on you. Then everyone who is in touch with this God-centered justice within them, the judicial sentiment, should boil with rage. You can't do that! Okay, here's my statement. That feeling 
of wanting the guilty to pay the just price is good. And it's godly. Okay, that's a first step now. Now, now most of us can think of grievous sin done to us in our lives by a mom or a dad or an uncle or friend or a spouse or boss and when we hear Jesus say forgive him or her, or say, release your bitterness and your desire for revenge and love your enemies. We hear that kind of talk. There's something that rises up within us with a judicial sentiment that just feels, I want to scream. That would be unjust. Do you understand the havoc that that sin has wrecked upon my life? And that I struggle with decades later. When someone tells us, get rid of the grudge. After all, the way you just argued, Joe, isn't that feeling a reflection of God's justice? That's the problem with forgiveness. That's the problem that we human beings, we Christians, feel. I have been sinned against. I'm innocent here. That was wrong. I've been given a judicial sentiment. Now you just say, release them. That's a tension. You feel the tension? What in the world do we do? And that's why I want you to turn to Romans. Turn to Romans. That's why Romans chapter 12 Verse 19 is such a crucial promise for Christians to overcome our God-given bent toward bitterness and revenge and to obey Christ and forgive. This is what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave that vengeance to the wrath of God. For, here's his argument, it is written, God says this, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That verse, Christian, is how you maintain loving justice and forgiving those who sin against you or absolutely being free from the her horrendous bitterness that may be rising up within you of that unbeliever who has so sinned against you. That's the key. You see, he just told us, God intervenes as the avenger. So that we can go ahead and not deny, acknowledge the evil, the sin that has come against us, the crime that has come against us. But at the same time, being absolutely freed from having to be the judge and the jury and the executioner of that person. See, God's promise here says, put your name there. Yes, an injustice has been committed against you. That sin deserves just punishment. That person is not being punished. They're walking around. They're eating. They're drinking. They're being merry. And yet, dear Christian, you may not be the one to mete out the just 
punishment. You may not take your own personal revenge. Okay, now get it. Why? Because God will make sure justice is done. God will repay. And you cannot improve on His justice. He knows the circumstances infinitely better than any of us finite, sinful human beings. Down here. And so, here, you've got to hear me now. If we say now to verse 19 of Romans 12, no! I'm going to hold on to my grudge. I don't care what you say. Then, at that point, we do not trust God's Word. Not right here. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave that to the wrath of God. Now, here's the promise. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. See, that's why the command to forgive those who repent or to release those vengeful feelings for those who don't, that's why those commands are at the heart of the Christian life. Because they are the life of faith. That meaning the life of are you trusting God's promises? Do you believe this promise? That's the question to me and to you every day of our lives. And, and, and there's some circumstances hadn't happened are going to come. And that question, let it arise in your time with God. Do you believe this promise? The issue of releasing bitterness and revengeful feelings is an issue of faith in God Himself through Jesus Christ. If anyone in human history had a right in his humanity to be bitter, to be angry, and to act upon that anger and take out his vengeance against unjust sin, against himself as spit ran down his face and his teeth are being slugged and a crown of sharp thorns pounded into his forehead, it would have been Jesus. Now, here's a question then of our big brother Jesus. How in the world did he do it? How did he control himself in his human nature? The Apostle Peter gives us the answer in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. Answer? Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Okay, now he's getting sinned against. Here it comes. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Listen to the last line. What did he do? But he continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. See what He said? He says that Jesus in His humanity obeyed God. He walked by faith. He trusted in the truth that God is righteous and perfect justice will eventually be accomplished. And so, he did not need to avenge himself then because he entrusted all of that to God 
who will avenge. Now, here's the thing. Notice why Peter just said that. Okay, Go back to the verse before. Verse 21. For to this Christian you have been called. To what? There's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice is done against you in this life. That's the context. To this you have been called to endure during this very brief life. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. And that's where He lays out His example. He entrusted Everything happening to him, to God, the just judge. Okay. Now the problem grows. This is what we have seen here in Romans 12, 19. God's wrath comes. The wrath of God is the key to forgive unrepentant unbelievers. Or at least, let me just restate that. If they're not forgive, but to release the vengeance that you want to enact, those feelings of bitterness, that's it. Okay. But, here's the problem now. There is no wrath for believers who sin against you. <laughs> you feel it yet? See, if God's promise of judgment is the basis of letting go and being free from the ties of anger and bitterness and bile out of your mouth, which it is, towards unbelievers, then what's the basis of letting go and forgiving each other? Believers who do repent. See, our righteous indignation at a terrible offense against us does not just disappear because it happened to have been committed by a fellow Christian. Actually, the betrayal of a close Christian friend or Christian spouse can feel much worse than at the hands of a non-Christian. But Romans 8.1 says, even about them is about you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us, believers, for wrath. Thank God. But He's destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. So then, here's the question. What do we do to deal with that righteous, rising anger, indignation at the sin of a fellow believer against us? How does the Gospel empower us to take sin seriously and to forgive that serious sin against us? The answer is we look to the cross of Christ. All the wrongs that have ever been committed against us by believers. You've got to hear it. You've got to hear everything. It just comes down to this statement. Every sin, your wife, your husband, your best friend, this old friend, this mom, this dad, of any one of those people who is a believer, any sin, all sins, past, present, and future that have ever been committed by a fellow believer have been avenged in the death of Jesus. The suffering and the slaughter of Christ was God's justice meted out against every sin, every pain, every hurt that you experience at the hands of other believers or ever will experience. Whether that's your wife or your husband or your mom, your dad, your friend, 
a boss, or a pastor. Christianity does not ever make light of sin. But God takes sin and the sin against all of His sheep so seriously that it took His eternal Son to become a human being in order to live and as a sacrificial substitutionary lamb be the object from at which God Himself would vent His vengeance and His wrath against all the sins of everyone who will be saved. When God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, the meaning is probably much more profound than you ever realized. Not only does He enact justice in His vengeance with an eternal coming hell, but also in the person, the death, and the resurrection of His Son. And that means, believer, we have no need nor right to hold on to bitterness and grudges toward anybody. Unbeliever, or believer. God in Christ has solved all of our problem of the tension of this judicial sentiment. <laughs> and forgive them. Don't take revenge. And He did it in Christ. You can trust Him that every wrong will be made right like all of your wrongs which deserved hell but they were made right. Justice was done and it wasn't swept under the rug. But Jesus, your Savior, stepped in to take it. So when the pain of being wronged is felt deeply in us, when the distance between two friends grows because of offenses, when the tension in a marriage is silently loud. No matter what side of the given offense that you're on, we are to look to the cross of Christ. Look to 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just in order to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, go back to the text. We believers at our moments, we have our moments on both sides of this sin, don't we? So when we believers are the ones being called to account, being rebuked, we can Repent towards God and then towards the one we have sinned against down here. We can go and we can say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I sinned against you. Please forgive me. And then the other believer can say, yes. I forgive you. Our Savior died for both of us. He died for even that sin. And then we can both bathe in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The battle of 
growing bitterness towards fellow believers is fought by trusting in the cross of Christ where their sin as well as your sin was dealt with. We daily need to cherish the experience with God. Oh yeah. That's right. I deserve because of my culpability, I deserve eternal punishment. But you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for me. You have washed my guilt and my sins clean. See, I don't, I don't mean merely to look back and say, oh yeah, that's right, I'm off the hook. <laughs> I mean daily commune with God the Father who is the forgiver. Being forgiven makes us forgiving people. Now, I think the words of this sermon are felt right now very deeply by some of you. And I think others, it's good, it's good, yeah, yeah it's what we do. Mm -hmm. I'm forgiven and I forgive and yes, that's right, it's what we do, that's what we're Christians. Okay, and that's good, it's alright. I'm just going to say, your test is probably coming. Where in a very different context, you'll hear the words of Jesus. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and comes to you seven times saying, I repent, then you must forgive him. Now we're out of time. So take four more minutes. Or seven, I don't know. But I just, I just want to just make a number, of, not a number, four or five comments. Because there's a thousand questions that come up on forgiveness. And first, let me just say, I'm going to grab a couple texts. Forgiveness. Okay, I know. I, I've said the word forgive, but when do I know that I've really forgiven the person? Here's a couple helps for us, okay? We've just dealt with one in, in Romans 12, 9, 19. When that process that you let God work in you is when those revengeful feelings are gone. Okay? Don't, take your, don't take your own vengeance. I got it. Okay, well, those re, when you get, that revengeful feeling is gone. Secondly, when you get to the place where you realize, I do not seek for bad things to happen to them. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Paul writes, See that no one repays evil for the evil they already gave you. Okay. Get to the place where, that's right, I don't want to do them evil. Third, you wish for that fellow believer. You wish well for them. I mean, you really want the best for the person who so offended you. Where did I get it? Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Another sign of forgiveness. You grieve at calamities that happen to that person instead of rejoice. Thank goodness. Whew, you see, I told you. You don't want that. Proverbs 24.17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Okay, the other th here, here's a big test. When you've been so pained by someone, no one else is around, and it's just you and God. 
do you find that you're able to pray for their good? If not, then keep pushing toward it. God, help! Help me. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Another sign is seek reconciliation. I did not say find it. Often, it's not attainable. It takes two to tango. But Paul wrote it this way. If possible, it's not always, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then, Always be willing towards that person to come to their aid if you're that person and you can help. Get your heart into that place where you can do that. The law of Moses says in Exodus 23, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. All right. A couple more comments in. Forgiveness does not mean the absence of anger it's sin. I don't think they are equivalent. To forgive a person does not mean that we feel good about what was bad. That sin against you. There are such grievous sins in this world that leave scars. They leave marks. Think about child molestation. And the reverberations of that in millions of people's lives throughout their adulthood. Think about a spouse being unfaithful and committing adultery against you. Think about the murder of a loved one whom you'll never see down here. Again, so let me just, okay, got this? Now, down the road, as you're praying and you're thinking about that that sin, that act, and you feel anger again. Just, oh gosh. And you're praying. You sense the horrificness and the evil of that act. Okay? That does not mean you are sinning. That does not mean that you are refusing to get rid of bitterness. It does not mean you did not, if you did, it does not mean that you did not forgive that person because the thought of the horrific horrific act comes back again and strikes your mind with a spear. Okay. Okay. Forgiveness does not mean the total absence of any anger towards that sin that had happened. And forgiveness does not mean the absence of serious consequences for sinners in particular circumstances. Let me just just give you an example of what I mean by that. A crime is committed against you. Just pick your pick your crime. You're a burglar, you're mugged. Okay, let's just say you're mugged. And there's some reason prosecuting attorney or the other lawyer says that, that, look, my guy who's sitting in jail and he's gonna go on trial, he really wants to speak to you. And you go. And he says to you, I really want to tell you that I'm sorry for mugging you. Will you forgive me? You are to forgive and do it and be happy about it and talk gospel with them. Or maybe he just got saved, whatever you do. And then you walk into the courtroom and you testify in order to put him in jail for whatever period of time for the crime that he committed. Forgiveness does not mean 
that that person who has sinned against you has earned your trust again. It is possible to say, because it's a reflection of the reality, I really do forgive you, but I don't trust you in this area. At least, not yet. I want to be able to trust you. You must work at it with me. You must earn it, and it may take time. But, it's probably not genuine forgiveness if you say or if you really feel, I don't care about ever trusting you again. You can work all you want. You can do, for next 10 years, you can work at trying to earn my trust, but forget it. It's not happening. In fact, I hope nobody ever, ever trusts you again. That's not a forgiving spirit. And that is disobedience to Jesus in our text, and that is an extremely dangerous spiritual place to be. Let's pray. Father, I trust that you have been and are and will be working in all of us by Your Holy Spirit and this Word deeply. And therefore, on behalf of all these people, as a fellow sinner, I ask that You, today and tomorrow and the weeks to come, show overwhelming power of your Holy Spirit applying your word and bringing great fruit of the gospel as we are growing and learning to forgive and to release as you in Christ have forgiven that and through our relationships may the glory of the gospel constantly be seen in this church and in ten thousands of churches Lord Jesus to the glory of your name